Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. Today's selection of floretry is entitled, Remembrance. When your light shone upon dark waters, it was a day or so before we rode the ascent to life's passion play. Giant chasms manifest a past that is cast in shadowy tales of creation wrapped within mystery. A pristine rigor blooms in beauty through the arid strange forms that serve as memory for hearts that truly see. Noble mountains draped in a garment of purity wait patiently for seeds of fertility to come forth. Elusive mysteries lovingly flit about the door to your presence, longing for just one smell of your scent. On land, some of God's handiwork plods along, hiding a secret grace that only shows itself in life's deep sea. Winds gently caress harbingers of spring that silently sing melodies of praise for the loner of being. Creatures of the air skim watery surfaces that are decorated with green, craggy signs of your nearness. Ghostly mists glide eloquently down valleys and through trees that bear witness for life's purpose against random theories. Rustling leaves begin to turn yellow as the tide of life starts to ebb towards a time when all is brought back to you. Majestic waters move constantly, reminders of human dependence on blessings flowing to us from thee. Divine ingenuity guides us to build crafts that serve like life rafts as we're drawn to reach out and touch thy face. The soul is the last outpost for light and seeks to resist the onslaught of a night which arrives through your absence. Surely, amidst the glories of life, worship should not be limited to the confines of human construction. Today's story is entitled Becoming an Artisan There once lived a person who was a sincere skeptic concerning the mystical path. 
In other words, although this individual was willing to allow for the possibility of truths and realities beyond the sensory material realms, nevertheless, there were a lot of things concerning spirituality which didn't make a whole lot of sense to him and about which he puzzled. For example, he wondered why mysticism seemed to be couched in so much secrecy. He didn't understand why there appeared to be so much of a hide-and-seek quality to the whole process. That is, he didn't understand why the truths of the spiritual path just couldn't be laid out for everyone to see so that those who were interested could obtain what they needed. In addition, he didn't really see the need for a teacher. Or, stated in an alternative way, he wondered why divinity just didn't approach people directly through either their rational and or their spiritual faculties rather than having to channel things through a mystical guide. This man also had a variety of questions about philosophy, government, and science. However, the questions to which he kept returning were the ones he had concerning the mystical path. And these sort of questions seemed, for him at least, more important than the other kind of questions that preoccupied him from time to time. Life being what it is, the mysteries of the spiritual kind often had to be put aside as he went about trying to earn a living and support his family. In fact, although this person was a hard worker, he lately had been encountering considerable difficulty trying to land a steady job because of the crumbling condition of the economy. This person had a college degree, but he preferred working with his hands. Over the years, he had become fairly proficient in a wide variety of skills. From light carpentry to electrical work, and as well, he had a smattering of mechanical aptitude. Since he was a resourceful person, he often was able to scramble sufficiently well to earn enough money to pay rent, purchase food, and buy clothes for his family, but not much more. Nonetheless, through a combination of factors, including the lack of a union card, he always seemed to be engaged in a financial hire-wire balancing act in which he worked without a net, and quite frequently he wondered if he would be able to slip-slide his way along that financial wire and reach the temporary safety of the platform which signified that for one more month he had been able to pay his bills. He had learned to be flexible and adaptable with respect to the jobs he took. Furthermore, he always was looking out for new opportunities, things which either would allow him to develop additional skills or that might open up new career possibilities which offered more permanent job status. Currently, he was once again in between jobs and was scouring the Internet the newspaper classified store windows and job agencies looking for work possibilities. The only thing currently available involved using his hands. It was an apprenticeship position in a pottery shop. The job was located within a reasonable commuting distance from his house. He called the indicated number and after several tries got through to the owner of the shop. She was an elderly woman, who was getting too old for certain aspects of her business and was looking for someone who would help her out. She couldn't afford to pay much more than minimum wage, but the work would be steady for the foreseeable future.
and as a sort of compensation for the low wages, she was prepared to train the person she hired to become a potter. She even indicated that if she found the right person, she would consider selling the business to that individual. Due, among other things, to an increase in relatively wealthy clientele, who on the one hand were looking for original works of art, and who, on the other hand, were searching for certain kinds of pots to use in cooking and baking, the woman's business was more thriving than it had ever been. People were looking for products of durability and quality, and they were quite ready to pay good prices for the right sort of items. The woman specialized in cooking pots. However, she was an expert craftsperson in all manner of pottery. After talking with the woman, the man discussed the situation with his wife. He went over the pros and cons of the job possibility, and eventually they both decided that the job seemed to have considerable potential, both short-term and long-term. He phoned the owner of the shop again and said he would like to apply for the job. They arranged to meet the next afternoon, and by the end of the day he was hired as the woman's apprentice. The woman was very meticulous in her training methods, and there was far more to learn than the man originally had anticipated. The woman wanted to impress on her newly hired apprentice that there were significant differences between pots that were mass-produced and those which were done in the traditional way. And so, at the end of the first week, after he had been given enough information which would enable him to make a pot that would be similar in quality to the ones which were mass-produced, she had him fashion several baking pots. The process only took a short time, and when he completed the assignment, she had him set the pots aside on a storage shelf as a reminder of his first efforts. After a number of years, he had become quite adept in all facets of making pots. The owner was quite pleased with his progress. One day she informed her apprentice that she wanted to retire, and with certain reservations she might be willing to turn the whole business over to him. She knew he was not a wealthy person and said she was prepared to take regular payments for the business until such time as it was completely paid for. However, before she retired, she wanted to make sure the man really had mastered everything he needed to know about the making of pots. Her shop had developed a considerable reputation, and she didn't want to see all that hard work go to waste as a result of a decline in the quality of the pot which might be sold through the store in the future. Consequently, she informed him that she wanted to be his first customer, and she commissioned him to make a special cooking pot, one that was particularly difficult to make because, among other things, it had to impart a certain precise taste to the foods which were cooked in it. This aspect of taste was very subtle, and if the pot was not made in just the right way, that taste would not be imparted even though the pot might be perfectly serviceable in every other respect. The process for producing such a pot was very complicated and time-consuming. Among other things, not just any kind of clay could be used in making the pot. Furthermore, there were certain natural ingredients that had to be prepared in an exacting manner and which had to be added at precisely the right time during the process. And finally, the pot had to be kept in a kiln 
for an extended period at a carefully regulated temperature. She had taught him everything he needed to know to accomplish the task. Now, however, she wanted to determine if the appropriate lessons had been learned. If he was able to produce the desired pot, then whatever reservations the woman had about turning the shop over to him would disappear. She would be able to retire with a clear conscience. The man set about making a pot, and nearly six weeks later, the pot was completed. Now the quality of the pot had to be tested. The woman prepared some food to put in the pot. Since she had made more food than the pot could hold, she took several more pots down from the shelf and filled them as well. All three pots were covered and placed in the cooking oven. An hour later, the oven was open and the woman set about removing the cooked food. Unfortunately, one of the pots had shattered, although the other two were intact. After cleaning up the mess from the shattered container, the woman turned her attention to the other two pots. She took several wooden spoons and dipped each spoon into a different pot. She tasted from the first spoon and her nose wrinkled. She shook her head in a disapproving manner. She tasted from the second spoon. A gleam came into her eyes and her countenance radiated with approval. Then she invited her apprentice to dip two further spoons into the respective pots and taste the contents of the spoons just as she had done. Upon tasting, the apprentice's reactions were much as the shop's owner's had been. The shop owner turned to her former apprentice and said, The pot which shattered was one of the two you had made when you first came here. It was made in haste and as a result was not able to withstand the heat of the oven. The pot that yielded the distasteful food was another pot you made shortly after you first arrived. Although it managed to survive the heat intact, nonetheless it spoiled the taste of the food because of its poor quality. The average person might not have been able to notice the problem, but a true artisan would have detected the defect and its effect upon the food. The pot which contained the very tasty food was the one you just completed and I am happy to say it was made perfectly. So you obviously have mastered everything that I tried to teach you, and you are no longer an apprentice, but now you are an artisan. Furthermore, I see no reason why we can't go ahead and draw up the papers for transferring the shop to you. The man was very happy with the outcome of things and thanked her for all her help, knowledge, and patience across the years. He was excited and wanted to call his wife and tell her the good news. The man was about to make the call when the woman stopped him and said, There is something more which I have to say to you. The man put the phone down and waited for her to speak. She said, You not only know now how to make pots, you also have the answer to some of your questions about the mystical path which you had when you first started working with me. The man was rather startled because he had never talked to the woman about such matters. While he was trying to figure out how she knew, she continued on. Many of the techniques that I have taught you are secret because if they were to fall in the hands of the wrong people who had little or no appreciation for the artistry of pot making, they would exploit such knowledge by taking to cut corners and in the process produce pots which either were not able to withstand the heat or which imparted an offensive taste to the food. 
The same is true in mysticism. Secondly, just as it took time for you to learn the intricacies of pottery through acquiring insight, knowledge, and understanding in relation to an appropriate set of experiences, so too it takes time to learn the intricacies of the mystical path. One needs more than information in order to accomplish this. One also needs the right set of experiences. And as well, one needs to work with someone who knows how to utilize those experiences in order to help an apprentice develop a deeper understanding of what is needed to become an artisan. And the former point leads into my final comment. There are many books on pottery which are available in trade stores. You could have read all of those books and still not have understood what you have learned by interacting with me over an extended time. The learning which takes place between an artisan and her or his apprentice is much different than the learning that occurs when someone reads a book. You could not have made the pot you just did merely by reading books. There has been a special chemistry between the two of us, which has developed over the years, and it is that chemistry which has found its way into the pot you just finished. And it is that chemistry which an artisan passes on to an apprentice and which transforms the apprentice into an artisan. The woman paused for a moment and then said, The questions you have had about the realm of spirituality were sincere ones, and divinity responded to that sincerity by sending you to me. If you are ready and interested, perhaps I could use my retirement to help you learn about the real purpose of life, which, by the way, is not to make pots, even ones of quality. Rather, the making of quality pots merely represents a worthwhile point of departure. The title of this week's musical interlude is Favorite Season.
From high above the stage at Carnegie Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, and all venues in between, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. For the past several weeks, I've included an announcement in the Sufi Reverberations Podcast that talks about the free download of a software package entitled Bridge. Those announcements allude to a Patreon project with which I am associated. The purpose of that project is to raise money to underwrite the cost of gifting books to different libraries in North America. The books that are to be gifted consist of the 40 books that I have written over the last several decades, and the subject matter of those books covers an array of topics, from Islam and the Sufi path, to religion, education, constitutional law, spiritual abuse, sharia, quantum physics, cosmology, evolution, psychology, political science, medicine, and 9-11. More than 45 years ago, during a textbook prejudice campaign conducted in Canada, in which I participated shortly after stepping on to the Sufi path, I learned that most people in North America have a very poor and often distorted understanding of Islam as well as the Sufi mystical tradition. My Patreon gifting project seeks to help alleviate the aforementioned sort of ignorance by gifting quality research materials that are written from an Islamic and a Sufi perspective. You can find out more about this project by visiting http.com P.S. colon backslash backslash www dot anab a n a b hyphen white house w h i t e h o u s e dot com and click on the menu three option of the drop down menus and then click on Patreon. Today's edition of Meditative Thoughts is entitled Curriculum. Many people believe mysticism is just a lot of pie in the sky, cloaked in bizarre rituals. These same people tend to maintain mysticism is highly subjective, with little practical relevance to the real world. In addition, there is a strong suspicion among such people that spiritual guides are flimflam artists who either want your money or wish to enslave you, or both. Mystical teachings are considered by many people to be come-ons which are vague and confused, promising fantastic powers but delivering little, if anything, which is substantial and tangible. Moreover, many people operate under the assumption there is really no difference between mysticism and either magic or the occult. Generally speaking, people who hold the foregoing kinds of view have never met or spent time with a genuine mystical guide. Most, if not all, of their ideas on the matter are opinions based on received doctrine from someone else who, also, is essentially ignorant about things mystical. They may have come in contact with individuals who claim to be authentic mystical teachers but who, in reality, were not genuine. However, just as there is a difference between a counterfeit article and that which is being counterfeited, so too there is a fundamental set of differences between, on the one hand, true mystical teachers and teachings, and on the other hand, pseudo-mystical teachers and teachings.
As is the case with all other subjects, there are people who know what they are talking about when it comes to mysticism, and there are also people who do not know what they are talking about and try to sound as if they do have such knowledge. If the audience being addressed on such matters is ignorant of the truth, a false teacher can appear to be as impressive as a true teacher. The problem faced by the average individual who is interested in mysticism is the following. Trying to figure out how to differentiate between genuine tender and its counterfeit. A little gift of the gab, along with a modicum of charismatic showpersonship, plus a dash of chutzpah, can dazzle a lot of people into confusion and error. Mysticism has absolutely nothing to do with the occult or magic. There may be dimensions of reality which do give expression to magical and occult phenomena, but the mystical path is independent of and entirely transcendent to such phenomena. Mysticism is not about pie in the sky. Mysticism is about the nature of the reality of our essential capacity and identity. Mysticism is not impractical. It gives expression to eminently useful principles and practices which help us resolve and deal with the problems of day-to-day -day life. Mystical teachers are not flim-flam artists who have an abiding interest in money and control of other people's lives. Genuine mystical teachers are artists of truth and love who are unfailingly dedicated to compassion and helping people to realize their full capacity as human beings. Mystical teachings are not a collection of rambling, obscure and vague pronouncements. True mystical teachings are very specific, often in-your-face challenges to and confrontations of the false self. Mysticism does not give expression to the ruminations of fanatical subjectivity. Authentic mysticism is the exact opposite of subjectivity. The more subjective one is, the further from the truth one is. One of the objects of the mystical path is to induce us to give up the many subjectivities which govern and ruin our lives. The promises of the mystical path are rather substantial and concrete. We will have to struggle and persevere. We will have to exercise patience and do justice. We will have to sacrifice our egos. We will have to accept difficulty and hardship with equanimity. We will have to learn how to swim in a sea of incredibly strong undertoes of confusion and doubt. We will have to generate not just feelings of compassion for others, we will have to strive to actively and tangibly show compassion for others. We will have to exercise sincerity in all we do. We will have to undergo the greater pain and trauma of the death of the false self before we endure the pain and trauma of the lesser death of the physical body. If, by the grace of God, we are able to accomplish all of the foregoing, then if God wishes, we will attain the peace, joy, freedom, understanding, and love which comes with the realization of our essential capacities and our true identities. Sufi masters have themselves experienced all of this, and their lives give a running testimony to the truth of what has been promised, both with respect to the struggles and difficulties, as well as in relation to the possible fruits of one's endeavors. A curriculum is sometimes described as a means or method used to bring an educational goal to completion. The curriculum of the Sufi path involves a no-nonsense, rigorous discipline which has a beginning, a middle, 
and an end. The goal of the mystical path is to know, love, worship, and serve God in an unceasing, intense, and direct manner. In order to have a chance of realizing this goal, a variety of subjects and methodologies must be experientially engaged, ingested, and implemented in the fabric of one's life. One must study the psychology of the false self. One must be trained in the requirements and nuances of spiritual etiquette, which are capable of not only combating the false self, but also are able to give expression to spiritual qualities of purity and harmony, which supplant the machinations of the false self. One must learn the nature and significance of objectivity. In conjunction with this, one must become well-versed in the sources of spiritual distortion, bias, and error. One must come to understand the parameters and possibilities inherent in different spiritual instruments and modalities within us. In addition, one must learn how to calibrate these instruments and modalities so they give reliable, useful, experiential results. One must be helped to gain facility with a variety of practices and techniques such as chanting, meditation, and contemplation. The how, when, why, and what of these practices involve a variety of principles and cautions which are not always easily acquired or implemented. One needs to develop a taste for, appreciation of, and insight into the meaning of the events and the experiences which one encounters along the Sufi path. The scope of human potential is immense, and learning how to sort out the numerous forces, both problematic as well as beneficial, which act on us and through us, is a very complex issue. One must learn how to bring balance, harmony, and justice into all dimensions of one's life and one's interactions with the rest of creation. The middle way is the golden mean to a properly ordered life in each of these respects. However, coming to understand exactly what this involves in any given instance requires much practice and struggle. All of the foregoing areas of investigation are part of the Sufi curriculum. They each have important contributions to make in assisting the individual towards the realization of the goal of the Sufi path. Anyone who, God willing, sincerely pursues the mystical curriculum under the guidance of a genuine guide will come to experience firsthand that mysticism in general and the Sufi path in particular are very, very different from what most people suppose to be the case. Such people will come to know mysticism is not an incoherent, subjective, impractical, occult-like set of speculations and theories which are incapable of satisfying the promise of self-realization and direct experience of divinity. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion.